we look at your word, I pray that we would hear it with ears to hear. And I pray that we would understand in context what you are calling us to see and understand. And I pray that we would live lives unashamed. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would be my strength in my weakness. I pray we would all be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. We've been looking at a series of don't be ashamed. And we've been looking at it for now for this is the fifth week. And so today we're on part five. Don't be ashamed. And, and as we get started, I want to just quickly review with you where we've been. Starting back in verse 3, we go from 3 to verse 18 in 2 Timothy 1. Paul is writing from prison, and it's right before his death. And he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, probably in his early 30s. And he writes to this preacher who's the pastor at Ephesus. And he's encouraging him to live unashamed for the gospel, to guard the good deposit that God had given him to retain the sound words. And he starts out and he says, Timothy, remember your faith. Remember your faith. Remember your gifts. Remember your gift that God has given you. Remember the resources that God has given. He didn't give you a spirit of fear, but he gave you one of power, of love, and of sound mind. Remember the purpose he has for you, Timothy, the purpose that is true for all of us as Christians. Remember his faithfulness, Timothy. We saw last time also, remember the sound words that we have in God's word. And then finally, today, we're looking at a, a passage that involves a unique name. Remember Onesiphorus. Remember Onesiphorus. We're going to learn more about Anessa Forrest as we get started today. You know, I was reading an article about the cultural context of prison. It's hard for us to understand culturally because while we hear of more martyrs in the last 25 years than at any point in time in history, martyrs in the Christian faith, people that are dying for their love of Christ, it's hard for us to get our arms around it in America to understand that phenomenon, the tragedy and the reality of prisoners in jail because of their love for Jesus. And I was reading, you know, one of the passages that it reminded me of was a passage in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, we see these words from Christ in verse 35 and 36, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. We read that in Matthew. You remember when we were walking through the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And in the article that I was reading, I thought this is helpful information. It said family and friends often deserted those in prison because of the shame. 
as well as of a fear of being associated with the prisoner's crimes. This fear was well-founded since many Christians who attended the trials of fellow prisoners or visited them in prison were incarcerated or even killed. I want you to think about that because while we may not be able to relate to that reality, we can relate to times when we're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because of personal cost that we will endure. I was thinking about this. Imagine I can only relate to uh, when I was in high school. And so if it, if it, you know, if it fits now, great. If it doesn't, hopefully you can see the analogy. It's not the same, but I want you to think of a scene. I want you to think about being a professing Christian in a high school where you're a little nervous about being bold for the faith. You're nervous about sharing Christ with people in the school. You attend an FCA or a Bible club, but there's not much personal cost because there's a lot of people in those very clubs and it's kosher and peaceful to be a part of it. But you know that if you go further with it, you might bear the cost. And imagine in that same setting, imagine in a setting that I was in back in the ancient days before electricity. Imagine there's a student in the school and the student boldly stands for Christ in a situation with a lot of popular kids and he's ostracized and marginalized and made fun of. And let's just imagine that kid in the cafeteria sitting by themselves being made fun of by even other professing Christians because of the radical nature of his faith. And let's imagine you go through the line and you're going to where you're gonna sit down for lunch and you see that kid and you see the group of friends back over about four tables where there's more popular, more socially acceptable friends. And you think to yourself, am I gonna sit down next to this Christian because I'm a believer also? Or am I going to go to the popular table? Now that pales in comparison with what Paul is dealing with, but it's the same idea. Am I going to face cost with following the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I gonna face ridicule? Am I gonna face associations with the wrong people? What will it cost me? What will I endure? That's exactly what we're seeing here. And as we get into this last part of don't be ashamed, Timothy, we come to this last one. Remember Onesiphorus. Let's read the text that we're gonna examine this morning, verses 15 through 18 of 2 Timothy chapter one. And we gotta remember, Paul is under the reign of Nero, one of the most notorious leaders in all of history. And he is facing a death sentence. And from what we can learn after this is written, this appears to be his last words in this letter. So we read in verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Today, three takeaways I want to look at with you that I pray would be not only faithful to the context, but relevant to us as we think about life in 2024 as Christians. Number one, realize there will be those who live ashamed and turn away. Realize there will be those who live ashamed and turn away. When we look at this passage, immediately we come across a negative example. I remember uh, I was at a little bitty Christian school in fourth grade, and we had a, a faithful Bible teacher, a guy that now is in heaven. His name was Mr. Dittman. And uh, he'd come in every week, and we'd sit on our carpet squares. Imagine that. And we had to sit on a carpet square, and when we go into the room, and one of the things he taught us as young kids that has always stood with me, he said, when, when, you, when you read the Bible, there's questions you can ask investigatively. And he gave an acronym, and it was the word specs. And he said, ask simple questions of the text. And one of them was, is there a sin to avoid? The second one was, is there a promise to claim? The third one, though, was, is there an example to follow? And, and you could extend that question, are there examples to follow and are there examples to avoid? And here in verse 15 would actually be an example of the negative. What are the examples we should avoid? We should avoid the guys that he mentions in this passage, Phygelus and Hermogenes. These are two men that turned away from Paul. And by looking at this, we are reminded of the rest of Scripture that they are a part of a larger group of those who will turn away. We don't know much about them other than they neglected and turned away from Paul when he was in need. When we look at this, uh, this phrase here, it's interesting. They turned away. And if we look at that word, it, it, it's interesting. It, 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 hit a, uh, it hit me a different way because the word means it's a rupture from a former association. It's sort of like my Achilles. It, it ruptured from a former association. It went another direction. It was associated where it needed to be, and it went another way. So when I ruptured that thing, it went the wrong direction. And they did as well. They turned away. They, they had a rupture from a former association. They separated. They departed. They turned around. They twisted. They reversed. They turned their back on Paul. It, it, it's fascinating because we have to be careful there was, a, there was a Christian singer that uh, many of you know because he still sings. Remember Stephen Curtis Chapman back in the day, all my older group? And uh, there was a song that I immediately remembered when I thought of this. And, and he sang this one song, and there was a line in it that said this, Tell me, tell me, who are you depending on? Tell me, who do you believe? You lost your faith in so many people, but is your faith in who it should be? There's only one who keeps all of his promises. He is the only solid ground. Let Jesus be the one you are trusting to lift you up because he'll never let you down. And I thought about that line when you think about these two men. Have you ever been disillusioned because of people that you loved and respected 
and, and trusted and they walked away? Or they weren't there for you when you needed them most? That's tough. And, and we don't know, you know, I, I, my prayer would be, my hope would be that these are two men that when the going got tough, they had this temporary shifting away. I don't know if they ultimately committed the act of apostasy or if they were just unfaithful in this moment, but I'll tell you, it's tough. It's a tough, tough reality. And I think it's one that the longer you live, you recognize it more and more sadly. There will be people that associate with the name of Christ. There will be people that are zealous for ministry that will turn away and it will be crushing and it will tempt you to despair. You better be ready for it. I tell you, young people, you're going to be disillusioned in your life as a Christian by people who proclaim the name of Christ. And if you're not aware of the biblical reality of that, it could potentially tempt you to be a shipwreck to your faith. I uh, was thinking of some examples here. You know, I read about, you know, Jesus says in John 6, he warns of this, and it's, it, the passage warns us, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Um, you remember, it's interesting just to get the, the gist of the teaching ministry of Christ, that it was offensive in Matthew 26, just jumping in the middle of the context, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled and all the disciples left him and fled. You, you see, even in 2 Timothy, you know, you've got these two guys mentioned in verse 15, but do you remember the guy named Demas? For Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. He was forsaken by the two mentioned in verse 15. He was forsaken in 2 Timothy 4.10 by Demas and then, you know, we've looked at it already, trying to get the overall sense of what's happening to Paul in prison. But he says this famous line in 2 Timothy 4, 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I, uh, I, I thought this was encouraging and interesting. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy and he is encouraging him not to be ashamed. But what he said about Timothy in other places is encouraging. You remember in Philippians chapter two, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And listen to what he says about Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And that was his words of Timothy. So when we look at this first opening in verse 15, remember, there will always be those who live ashamed and turn away. When we look at Phygelus and Hermogenes, we're reminded of that reality. But the second one I want you to think about today, take great encouragement from those who live unashamed. Take great encouragement from those who live unashamed. Allow their lives to spur you on 
to righteousness. This reminds me of a pattern that Paul does in the passage we just looked at in Philippians 2. Do you remember when he's exhorting the church at Philippi and he says, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And do you remember what he does in Philippians 2? He gives three examples. He starts with the supreme example, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives the example of Christ in his humiliation and in his obedience. And then he turns and he mentions Timothy, what we just read. He mentions Timothy, and then he turns and he mentions a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. It's similar to what he does here, because what he does is he's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony or of me, the prisoner, and as he goes through all the different ways of what Timothy is to be reminded of not to be ashamed, he then gives him an example of someone who wasn't ashamed of him. And he says, basically, the inference is, Timothy, be encouraged from the life of a fellow servant in Christ, the guy by the name of Onesiphorus. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, look, draw encouragement from Onesiphorus. When we look at this man, it is, his name is fascinating. His name means for your profit, for your advantage. And think about that. That's a, that's a wonderful name, isn't it? And that's a wonderful way to look at his life. He lived for others' advantage. And so as we look at this outline and we see, hey, realize there will be those who live ashamed and turn away. Take great encouragement from those who live unashamed. Thirdly, learn from their lives. What we're going to do the rest of the time this morning is we're going to look at five marks of an individual who lives unashamed. Five marks of an individual who lives unashamed. Right off the bat, what is the characteristic? Number one, they're unashamed of the testimony and the prisoner. And you may be thinking, why do you say it that way? Because that's really the heart of what Paul's saying. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8 here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what do we learn immediately? By using Onesiphorus, as an example, he is a great example of one who's unashamed of the testimony of the Lord, and he's unashamed of the prisoner of the Lord. When you think about turning away, he uses this a lot of places, but, but notice a couple of ways. I want you to think about this. Again, the reality of those who turn away, Titus says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of what? People who turn away from the truth. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will what? 
turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He brought profit. He brought advantage. He's mentioned here in verse 15 through 18, his household is mentioned, but is also mentioned at the end of the letter. Notice this is the other text in 2 Timothy. It says, greet Prissa and Aquila and what? the household of Onesiphorus. So there are the references to this man named Onesiphorus. We know from verse 12 and what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do that he follows in that exhortation. I, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people that I read concerning this passage asked was the question, who do you relate more with? Do you relate more to the two men in verse 15 or do you relate more to Onesiphorus? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to pray about. One source made the comment about the passage, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, bad company corrupts good morals. And this was the statement then made. If we associate with spiritually courageous Christians, our own courage will be strengthened. On the other hand, if we associate with those who are ashamed of Christ and his gospel, we will soon be tainted by that shame. I think that's a really good point and something to consider. So first of all, when we think about the marks of one who lives unashamed, they're unashamed of the testimony and the Lord's prisoner. But second of all, what are they known for? They're known to be, they refresh, they refresh. I should have just said refresh. Now, they, they, they refreshes others is the mark of a person who lives unashamed. What does it mean to refresh someone? Have you ever been in a, uh, I remember, I don't know why I thought of this example, but years and years ago, my dad would go out of the country uh, for about a month almost, and there was a gentleman that we knew that had a condo in Tampa, Clearwater. And he would let us go down there. It was me, my mom, and my sister. I was 15, 16, 17, 18. It was around that time. And we would go down there. And uh, while I was down there, there was a big, you know, at those condos, a lot of times they have tennis courts. And I wasn't that great at tennis, but I loved to just smash a ball. You know, I loved playing with someone where it was legal to hit it out and just hit it all the way to the fence. You know, and they stand by the fence, you stand by the fence and just crank on it. And, and we would go out there in the heat of the day, and it was wonderful. I, what I remember is being so hot. It was so humid. It was July, you know, 95 degrees and 95% humidity, right? And you're out there, and you're sweating like a dog, and you get done, and I would walk back into that condo, and I can still sense the sensation of that air at like 66 degrees in the condo. I mean, that was always the thing, you know? If you're going to pay for that condo, you might as well get the air. If they don't set it, go for it. And you walk in, and it just hits you. And you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. It was immediate refreshment. I mean, it was instant. It was the greatest feeling of walking into that cold condominium. The word means to make cool, to refresh. It says it's literally the idea of refrigerating or refreshing with cool air as the body when overheated. 
Now notice, this is exactly the way that he describes the life of this servant Onesiphorus. It's amazing. He often refreshed me. If you start thinking about this and you put together different pieces like uh, pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, you start realizing what is it in a person that makes their life refreshing to others. It's not their personality. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God working through them, manifesting his grace in the lives of other people. And, and I started thinking about this. It's like, here's a guy that to the world would have been a throwaway, but it's sort of humorous to think. I mean, can you imagine if... Uh, you could have caught up with this fellow, Onesiphorus. You know, maybe they called him, uh, I don't know what they called him, nickname, but can you imagine them going up to him and saying, hey, man, you're going to be, they're going to be talking about you in North Alabama in 2024, 2,000 years from now, you're going to be an example of the grace of Christ. Don't you love that? You know, I think sometimes we get, uh, we get overwhelmed at, uh, life and we think that we tend to think sometimes like you know is God even using me is God even making me useful to the body of Christ but but I think one thing we can be encouraged by here is that God takes people who are yielded vessels who are the simple people of the salt of the earth and he ministers through them that in their foolishness, in the foolishness of who they are apart from him, his wisdom may be seen. That in their weakness, his power may be on display. And here's a guy, Onesiphorus, who is a refreshment to Paul. I, I like looking at the opposite, you know, just looking at the antonym of this word in a lexicon. And, and here's what's interesting. What is the opposite of making cool or refreshing. It, it, here it's to trouble, to disturb, to agitate, to annoy. I think about, man, don't you long for people that are around you that refresh you in the Lord? I, you know, it's, uh, I, you've been around people, I've been around people that, that are troubling. They're distressing. Fleshly speaking, they're annoying. And yet, Onesiphorus is a mark of an individual unashamed. I love this because when you know, when even when he speaks about retain the sound words, I want you to think about something. All the associates of Paul would have been immersed into Pauline doctrine. And you say, what does that mean? They would have been recipients of the message that he wrote down. It was his heartbeat. It was his passion to live as Christ. It was his purpose to preach people the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and you have to know that a man that would go from Ephesus and travel to Rome to leave his family, he would have to be a man who was influenced 
by the ministry of the apostle Paul and a man that was shaped by his teaching. And we see here just in this small verse, we see the implications of a person who lives refreshing. Um, there's a passage in 1 Samuel, when you take the, uh, you could run this word and, and you could look at how the Greeks interpreted the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint basically is a Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And this word is used when Saul was disturbed and David would take the lyre and play it with his hand. And it spoke about Saul being refreshed. It's used in Exodus 23 of a person on the Sabbath resting, being refreshed. It's used of, of, a, of a guy, Stephanus. And he speaks of three guys. These are hard names, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. I say, you know, just go with it and be confident. Nobody will question you, but I just eliminated all confidence. So question my pronunciations right there. That wasn't confident. The, but what did they do? First Corinthians, Paul mentions these three guys, and you know what he said about their life? For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And he says, give recognition to such people. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that these characteristics, one, he's unashamed of the testimony and of the prisoner. And then second of all, he refreshes others. But then third of all, what do we see? Pays a personal cost. There's a personal cost in living unashamed. And, and when we look at verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, we don't, there's some interesting things that come out of this passage, and it's baffled scholars for years. The question is this, why is he talking about him in past tense? Where is he? Why is he referring to the household? We don't know. I think it's interesting that he doesn't mention his death. He doesn't offer com comfort to the household of Vanessa Forrest. So I don't think we need to take the leap that he's departed, but I think we need to understand the personal cost involved because he was from Ephesus and his family lives in Ephesus. Paul, writing from a Roman prison to Ephesus, says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus. And immediately, I think one thing that comes to mind is he paid a personal cost with all that was involved in serving the apostle Paul. You know, Stephanus is the guy that I just mentioned. And it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, notice that verse. Stephanus is alive here. But notice how he speaks in verse 15. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the, were the first converse in Achaia. And then he mentions there in verse 17 that he's alive. So I don't think we can immediately come away with the fact that this guy is dead, but I think it's an interesting that he's away from his family. We can definitely at least observe that. He was paying a price. I, you think about the cost that's involved in following Jesus. Onesiphorus was a man who paid a personal cost. He took a long trip. 
He sought him out. So we see immediately three different observations about an individual or here specifically Onesiphorus who lives unashamed. But what is another characteristic? He goes over and above in order to serve others. And that indefinitely involves what we just looked at. He pays a personal cost, but notice how it's mentioned specifically in verse 17. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Again, I want you to think about it. You've got a dear brother or sister in the Lord in prison. Imagine we come into a type of country where it's a crime to preach the gospel. I tell you, that would have been a little bit, if you said that in the pulpit 50 years ago, people would have thought you're a little bit crazy. But I don't know if you're watching, but there is an announced sexual ethic that we are being told to embrace. And don't be surprised if hate speech comes into play for preachers who preach the Bible. I think that we'd be naive right now to think that this is a situation that we are not potentially on the doorstep in in America. Uh, I hope you're watching. But, but here's the thing. Imagine that that happens here. Imagine you are going to minister to somebody in prison and imagine you know that it could cost you greatly, that you being found as an associate of the individual that you're visiting could put you in prison. I wonder how you'd react. You know, isn't it interesting that, that Paul is speaking about a man who was willing to do what others weren't willing to do later on? Because he's speaking about at my first preliminary hearing, nobody came and stood for me. But then at this point in the book, he says, man, what a blessing and what a refreshment old, old Nesiphorus was to me. He came to me. He sought me out. He ministered to me. Uh, he paid a personal price. His presence was dear to the apostle Paul. I want you to think about that. Can you think, you probably can immediately because of how powerful the imagery is, but think about people that have blessed you by their presence. You may be like, what do you mean? Well, well think about heartache, think about loss. I worked with a guy, there were, there were two, two things really stood out to me at my dad's funeral. And, uh, well, many, but I, I was in the line and you're sort of in a, you're sort of in a fog and people are coming by and it's a good distraction because you love the people that are coming by, but you, you're sort of like numb. But then I looked up and there was Ryan, Ryan Frazier. And I worked with him in Albuquerque. And I thought to myself, that dude got on a plane to come see me for 15 minutes? And, and I was so blown away. And I was standing there looking at him. And he brought me immense comfort, comfort to my heart. I was like, wow, man, he... You love, you care about me. You, you sought me out. You didn't have to do this. He came in, got on a plane, came there, 
went to a hotel, got up, flew back. He, his presence, he paid a cost. And I want you to think about something. The, what, we're learn, what we learn here is, is like, okay, a person who is living filled with the spirit of God, a person who is living out of the resources that God provides, a person who is moved and changed and transformed by the sound words in this book, a person who lives following Christ, their life becomes useful in the hands of the Lord because they're a vessel through which he ministers to others. I want you to think about that. The personal presence, the cost was dear to Paul. He went over and above. The word that's used here means diligence, earnestness, eagerness. He, he sought him out. He didn't know where he was. He came to him. He wasn't ashamed of his chains. It was a cost. He, he had left his family. His family obviously missed him. He sought him out. He longed to be with him and minister to him. You know, when you think about the people that Paul mentions in his letters, do you realize at the close, I don't have time to do it right now, but do you realize at the close of the book of Romans, Paul mentions 33 names? He mentions 33 names. And if you read that list, as you finish the book of Romans, you start to look at a list of people that Paul loved dearly, people that ministered to him. There's a guy that Lord willing, I'm going to see in about six, seven weeks. His name's Jajel. Jajel was a friend of my father's that risked his life under communism, under Ceausescu, uh, to share the gospel in Romania. He was a student when the revolution took place in 1989. And, and he's a guy, when uh, all of the war broke out, and you know, you think about all the bordering countries to Ukraine and all the Eastern European effects. When the war broke out, I immediately noticed that there was one guy, a faithful brother in the Lord, the guy that I told you about who was an atheist. He was one of the smartest guys in university, and he was seeking to disprove the Bible. So he read through the Bible, and while he read through the Bible, he was converted, and now he's a pastor. And uh, his daughter was expecting in Ukraine. And it was like, you know, the, the trauma of bombs are coming, all kinds of things. Jajel, what did he do? He's a servant. Everybody knows him as a servant. At the conference that I go to, he's always in the background. He never has to speak. He never has to have a pulpit. He never has to have a stage, but he's constantly meeting needs. He's constantly behind the scenes. And what I found out was, I saw Costell and Mia, and I said, how's Jajel? And they're like, you know, he went and got, he went and got her his daughter. He went and got her out of Ukraine. He went to the border. I was like, of course he did. You see Jajel, he is the friendliest big teddy bear. He could whoop you, but he's big old teddy bear, big guy. And you know what, Jajel, it was a personal refreshment, not only to me, but to brothers and sisters in Christ. When we give up our life for the sake of the gospel, and we lay down what we desire for what he desires, we immediately become valuable to the body of Christ because people are refreshed by our presence because when somebody has caught vision of what it looks like to follow after the ways of God and not after their self and they're not ashamed of the testimony or not ashamed of the prisoner, they become refreshing in the lives of other people. And I'll give you the option. The option is play a mediocre style of Christianity. Come and listen, be interested, grow in knowledge, 
but live for the ways of the world, your life will never be refreshing to others because the mark of those who are unashamed is a mark of those who are changed even by the principles of what we've already learned in 2 Timothy 1. It gives us a great thing to pray about, doesn't it? Say, oh God, would you help me to live for what matters? Will you help me be willing to lay down my life for what you have called me to, to put others before myself? Uh, the final one I want you to look at here, I, I love this, and I pray you're encouraged by it. The marks of an individual living unashamed. Number one, unashamed of the testimony of the prisoner. Number two, refreshes others. Number three, pays personal cost. Number four, goes over and above in order to serve others. Number five, lives in light of the day, lives in light of the day. Isn't that interesting language? Paul says in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. He's like, y'all know this guy. Y'all know how he serves you. You know the influence of his life. You know the presence of the manifestation of God's grace in him, even amongst yourselves. But now, what does he mean? May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. I want us to look at this just for a second as we close. You know, the day he seems to be referring to is this, the day of believers' judgment for works. The day that a believer will stand before Christ. He uses this term several different places that day. I want you to go through them real quick with me. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. We just read this. He said, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until what? That day. What has been entrusted to me? Look at, again, 16 through 18. He mentions it again. That day. Look at um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He mentions it again. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't it comforting to know that through the promises of Christ, while we're mindful of the need of God's mercy, we're confident of the reception of it. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And he speaks about when we were dead and he raised us up in Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon says about mercy in his devotional morning and evening. He says, it's a tender mercy. With gentle loving touch, he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He is as gracious in the manner of his mercy as the matter of it. It's a great mercy. Spurgeon says, there is nothing little in God. His mercy is like himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners after great leaks of time and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments. 
in the great heaven of the great God. It's not only tender mercy, great mercy, Spurgeon says, it's undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be, he says. For deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There was no right on the sinner's part to the kind consideration of the Most High. Had the rebel been doomed at once to eternal fire, he would have richly merited the doom. And if delivered from wrath, sovereign, sovereign love alone has found a cause, for there was none in the sinner himself. I love these. The next one, this is a good sermon right here. It is rich mercy. He says, some things are great but have little efficacy in them. But this mercy is a cordial to your drooping spirits, a golden ointment to your bleeding wounds, a heavenly bandage to your broken bones, a royal chariot for your weary feet, a bosom of love for your trembling heart. It is manifold mercy. And then he says, it is abounding mercy. Millions have received it, yet far from its being exhausted, it is as fresh, as full, and as free as ever and finally, Spurgeon says, it is unfailing mercy. It will never leave thee. If mercy be thy friend, mercy will be with thee in temptation to keep thee from yielding, with thee in trouble to prevent thee from sinking, with thee living to be the light and life of thy countenance, and with thee dying to be the joy of the soul when earthly comfort is ebbing fast. So when Paul speaks about may the Lord be merciful, he speaks about it in light of all that he said about the grace and the mercy and the peace that is in Christ Jesus. I love that. And Paul speaks about the day in 1 Corinthians, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And you know, today, how could... How could we live in light of the day, hopeful and confident in the mercy of God? It's because of a passage like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith Jesus, we're reminded that there's rewards on that day. There's rewards on that day. This morning, summing it up, one who lives unashamed, unashamed of the testimony of the Lord and of the prisoner of the Lord, one who refreshes others, one who pays personal cost, one who goes over and above in order to serve others, one who lives in light of the day. I saw a little video online, and it was really cute. It was a dad, and he had his little bitty girl, and they were on a dock, and it was one of those long docks that comes off the bank, and it's beautiful. It just went way out in the water. And at the very end of the dock, imagine I'm standing on the end of the dock. He was standing right here, and a little bitty girl, probably three or four, 
she had her daddy's arm, and he was swinging her over the water all the way back to the dock. And then she'd walk around him. He'd swing her over the water all the way back to the dock, and she was laughing and cutting up. And it's like you look at that picture and you go, wow, in order for her to enjoy that, she had to have full trust in her daddy. Full trust. You know, the full trust, I read this to you last week, but I want you to think about it. How do you, how do you live? How do you live unashamed walking in these truths that we've been looking at for several weeks? And I, I think the psalmist hits the heart of it. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. As we close today, let's pray that God would take his word and that we would continue to reflect on what we've seen in 2 Timothy 1 and that we truly would live lives that are unashamed because one of the byproducts of living unashamed is that it has a great impact on the people around us. Would you bow your head? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your gospel. And God, I think it, it pierces our hearts and it reveals our motives. Oh God, I pray you'd forgive us when we lose sight of your promises when we look to the ways of the world, when we're fleshly minded and looking to this world and not your kingdom, I pray that your word would work powerfully within us by your spirit. And I pray, oh God, that you would mature us and grow us into the people you call us to be. And I pray that we would see this powerful passage and how it's impossible to be worked out in our life apart from the fact that your word is authoritative. It is sufficient. That it enables your people to grow because of your spirit and because of the power working through the word. And I pray that, that you would change us, oh God. I pray that you would change our affections. I pray that you would transform us. And I pray that we'd continue to reflect and examine what it means to live unashamed. We thank you for your servant, Paul, your servant, Timothy, your servant, Onesiphorus, and what we can learn from their lives. I pray, oh God, that our lives would be marked by living unashamed. We think it's only through your grace. It's only through the resurrected Christ that can never be realized in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.